Amen. Okay, so our passage this morning, one short verse from uh, an overlooked book, contains within it a mighty subject, the Lord's unchanging nature, His self-consistency. I, the Lord, do not change. And His consistency in eternity and in time is what guarantees our redemption. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God's eternally stable nature is our refuge in an unstable and turbulent world. The psalmist proclaims, Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. And so when all that is solid melts into air, when the mountains themselves crumble and the earth shakes free from its access, access there is a stability to be found in our eternally stable God. All things threaten to consume us, but we're not consumed because He changes not. And so beneath the change and, and the flux and the turmoil of created things, there's a kingdom, Hebrews chapter 12, that cannot be shaken. A city, Hebrews chapter 11, that has foundations, which in turn grants us stability in this life. And so our passage this morning dictates that we do two things. One, raise our minds up and contemplate God's unchanging nature. I, the Lord, do not change as the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then two, to explore how God's unchanging nature is our refuge and security in this ever-changing world. And so what our passage proclaims to us in brief is expounded at length in the epistle of James. In chapter 1, verse 17, it's on the screen for you, James tells us, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, and then he says this, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good gift, every perfect thing comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So here, James makes a contrast between created light and uncreated light between the Father of lights and the lights that He fathers. The created lights are the heavenly bodies that populate the sky, sun and moon and stars. And they're characterized, James says, by variation and shifting shadows. The sun comes up from its hiding place, it shines its light upon us, and then it disappears behind the horizon. One shadow begins very long early in the day and then becomes almost invisible at noon and then is stretched back out 
until night comes, and all is shadow. And the process repeats throughout the year. The sun is closer and then further. It's hotter and then colder. Its light is a brilliant white and then a golden yellow and then again a cool, misty blue. But the Father who created light, who is himself light, is not subject, James tells us, to variation or shifting shadow. God is unchangeable, unalterable light, and he has no shadow, and he casts no shadow. As the scripture says, 1 John chapter 1, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So he shines, and there is nothing within him or without him that can alter or even diminish his radiance in the slightest. With God, it's always day. It's always high noon. Uncreated light simply is. It's always shining in its full strength. And that marks the main difference between created and uncreated reality, that which simply is and that which, like the world we know, travels through time. God is eternal and eternally himself, a light that shines without any change or darkness, whereas creation is subject to process, to variation, to change, to development and decline, to its own past, present, and future. Of old, you founded the earth, the psalmist says, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So all things around us will wear out like an old jacket. They have their day and then pass into oblivion, returning to the elemental matter from which they were created. And indeed, some things in our minute perspective seem nearly eternal. The sun and the moon and the mountains, the very ground that we stand upon. But to the vantage of time, they're a mere vapor. They're here one moment and gone the next. So change. Development and decline defines created reality. It defines the world, the universe that we inhabit. But again, God is without any development, without any decay, without any change in him. He is always the same, as the psalmist says, eternally himself. Now, God is not absent from human history from our world, but he certainly transcends it. He's present within our world of change and variation, but not as someone who's subject to that change and variation. God is self-consistent and unchanging within his presence in this world. He changes everything, and yet he himself is unchanging. And now if we take a step back in our passage, James wants us to understand something even further about 
God and his unchanging nature. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, 13 and 14 rather, let no one say, when I am tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God, here's our key phrase, cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. God is unchanging, the Scripture says, and that means that who He is is determined by none but Him. In other words, He Himself does not change, and nothing can change Him. Nothing can act upon the outside to make God be different than He is. We, on the other hand, um, are constantly acted upon by influences outside of ourselves. In this case, as the passage says, it's sin. Sin calls to us. It manipulates our desires. It uh, draws us out from safety into its deadly grip. And so we can be coaxed into acting against who we are in Christ. Right? We can be provoked into acting in a way that's inconsistent with our character something on the outside tugging at us, getting us to act in a way that's not inconsistent with who we are, not consistent with who we are in Christ. But not so God. He is self-consistent, and He cannot be flattered or enticed or persuaded into being anything other than who He is. God determines God. He's not vulnerable to external influence like His creatures are. Remember when he declares his name to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. God determines God. Now, many are uncomfortable with a changeless and undetermined God. Right? To them, it seems to indicate a deficiency. If God is unchanging and he's undetermined by us, it seems that he becomes abstract and lifeless and cold and distant from our world. And of course, we're sympathetic to that, and we should oppose any notion of God's changelessness that makes him further from us. But that has it exactly backwards. For God to be changeless, for him to be self-consistent, does not mean that he's like a rock, inert and unfeeling and incapable of responding to our need. Instead of a deficiency that God doesn't change, it ought to be understood as a perfection. God's attributes are never dormant. There's never a change in him from one degree to another. A little love and now more love. A little mercy and now more mercy. Uh, a little justice and now more justice. His love and his mercy and his justice and anything that he is are always perfectly active. And therefore, there's no change needed. He can't change. Only a perfect being cannot change. His holiness is always shining, without variation, without diminution, without shadow. It's not a lack in God, but it's His glory. His love is not activated by our need, a thing inside of Him that comes and goes here and then gone like it is within us. God's love is always active. It's ever in its full strength, regardless of our situation. Love and justice and mercy are not things that God has, but who God is, what 
God is. And of course, God always is. Changelessly, eternally, perfectly is. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And thus, we have hope. While the ground beneath us crumbles, our circumstances, our lives, not least ourselves, leaving us without a firm place to plant our feet, we can cast ourselves upon this God who, no matter what transpires around us or within us, is the same, eternally consistent. He has not varied with our varying circumstances. He has not grown a shadow as the world casts its shadow over us. God remains who He is. His loving kindnesses never cease, and His mercies fail not. Psalm 62, 1 and 2, My soul, wait in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. God's consistency rescues us from our own inconsistency, from being consumed by it and greatly shaken by it. Now, we're not talking about things external to us, but internal to us. Our personal inconsistencies, whatever they may be, a recurrent sin, up and down devotion, a generally disheveled interior life, these, our inconsistencies, create anxiety in our relationship with God. If we have even a minimal interest in our faith, an insecurity born from our inconsistency sneaks in to undermine our trust and confidence in God. Thoughts about not measuring up, not doing the right things, and not doing them consistently sit at the back of our minds while we attempt to pray and to read and to worship, to commune with God. And so we resolve ourselves to do better. And we actually do better for a time But then our old consistency rears its head again. And the cycle repeats itself for some time. We move from insecurity to confidence and then back again. And eventually, having been through that cycle so many times, we just decide it's better to keep our distance. Our relationship with God hardly inspires confidence and peace, but they're opposites because of our own inconsistency. Now, it's a familiar experience to many. And here's the problem. The relationship is based upon our inconsistency rather than God's consistency. Our confidence and security before God are not rooted in His unchanging goodness, but our own patchy and petulant efforts. We're staking our claim before God on a foundation that is no more secure than our mood at any given moment. And on such grounds, grounds that we anchor within ourselves, 
Our relationship with God is bound to the terms that we have set for it, our own unsteady obedience. But suppose we are more consistent people, diligent in our devotion and piety. If that's the case, then the danger is even greater. We are baited all the more into trusting in ourselves, into finding security in our own efforts. We must be reminded that the consistency we have is not from ourselves, but from God. And that the enemy may be content to allow us consistency so long as we continue to trust in our consistency, in ourselves, rather than God. And so, rather than looking for some consistency within ourselves, a consistency we'll never find, we ought to look for God's consistency outside ourselves. If it were on us, if it were up to us, we would have all already been consumed. But we're not consumed. We're not devoured by our sin because it's up to God. It's not up to us. Our relationship with God rests not on the feeble arm of the flesh, a strength that we can muster inside of ourselves, but on God's everlasting arms. I, the Lord, change not. Therefore, you are not consumed. And so our lives, once marked by our inconsistency, once interrupted and constantly upended by our own weakness, are infused with a stability that comes from God. Now, we're no less inconsistent than we were before, but now our inconsistency is not the bottom line. We're held together. We're given a firmness and solidity about us that comes from our eternally consistent God. The psalmist says, If I should say my foot has slipped, in his moment of inconsistency, he says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. There's God's consistency. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. And so our feet are planted on solid ground, knowing that despite who we are, all our ups and downs, all our variations, all our wavering devotion and obedience, God will always be who He is. And so our consistency, namely our disobedience and unrighteousness, they don't draw God into this cycle of responding like for like and tit for tat. He does not record us, rather, He does not reward us according to our sins, the Scripture says. Our relationship with God is not this, okay, it's based on what we do and then God responds. It's based on His consistency. He does not reward us according to our sins. And so our inconsistency can't provoke God or goad Him into acting out of character. Can't make Him be anything other than He is. His consistency determines things, and not ours, our inconsistency. Therefore, we're not consumed. It's up to Him and not up to us. And so what happens then is that God's loving kindness, my foot had almost slipped or was going to slip, but 
your loving kindness held me up. It provides a stable context in which our inconsistency can be overcome. Our personal struggles, whatever they are, don't have to derail our lives like they did when things were on us. When everything's on us, when all the weight is on your shoulders, even minor inconsistencies, the smallest chinks in the armor make room for anxiety that the enemy can exploit, exploit and turn into insecurity in our relationship with God. Because you have to do everything right. You have to be perfectly consistent. And if you don't, your conscience will let you know. And so unless we do it all right, confidence and security are not possible. There's no strength before the Lord, no love even, devotion even. And so we fall back into our inconsistency and even deeper than before because of the discouragement that comes. But this way, it's opposite. We don't strive for consistency. God gives it. The stability afforded to us is in His unchanging and unconditioned goodness. And it helps us to overcome our inconsistency. Now, we still wobble and stumble our way through life, but there is an eternal, eternally stable ground beneath us. God's goodness is always there to pick us up again, to bring us back to the narrow way, to heal and to restore and to remake. And so God's stability overcomes our instability, and in time, we ourselves become somewhat stable until we grow up into the stature of Christ, into, like 1 Thessalonians 5 says, the steadfastness of Christ. So to put matters plainly, it's freeing, this recognition that it isn't up to us, that it doesn't depend on us. It all depends upon God. His actions and His attitudes toward us are never determined by us, because he isn't determined by us. I am who I am. He's free, and he's free to be who he is, and that's the good news, because God is who God is, unchanging and undetermined love and mercy and justice. We are not consumed. We have hope and a future, because God is stable. So, God's consistency rescues us from our inconsistency and from the world's inconsistency, which also threatens to consume us. The illusion of control is a feature of modern life. Our mastery over nature, its forces which so threatened our forebearers, makes us feel in control more than we actually are. It seems to us that reality really is malleable, that it's subject to our will. And the multiplication of choice in our culture reinforces that illusion. The seemingly infinite amount of options before us cons us into thinking that we have control, not merely of what brand of cereal to get, but our own destiny. I can be what I want to be. I can become what I want to become. I can realize whatever plans I have, it's all within my grasp. But that's to inhabit a lie that our culture 
has constructed. There's very little in this life that is actually in our control. You've heard the statement, you can't control what happens to you, only how you respond, something like that. But that's even to give ourselves too much credit. Christian theology has always affirmed that the human will, along with desire and intellect, is bound to sin. It's plainly manifest that our wills are not free, that we cannot, at times, even control our response to things. Otherwise, why do we still sin? If it were in my control, why, why do we still sin? We're forced to recognize that even our choice is beyond our control, captive to an external force. You know, Augustine once said, and this is an old debate in the fourth century between someone who basically said, like, you can make yourself perfect. That was his whole theology. Augustine once said, writing, writing to combat him, Pelagius, he says, most sins are committed by people weeping and groaning. That even our, our response is not in our control. And so there are times when reality, brute fact, shatters our illusions of control. Reflecting on a sudden cancer diagnosis, one writer said this, As I now look back, I'm chagrined by my lifelong practice of supposing far more influence over my circumstances and events than I actually possessed. Rather than being captain of a large boat in a small lake, I was more akin to the skipper of a small raft in the Pacific Ocean. Such events demonstrate the truth of our situation. We are not masters of our own fate, captains of our souls, but small things cast about the flux and turmoil of history, subject to forces far beyond our control. And we find that the current takes us where we don't want to go as much as it takes us where we want to go. We echo Ecclesiastes' pessimistic vision. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability. He says this, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time, like a fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. In short, we find that we are not in control and that this world of chance and senselessness constantly threatens to consume us. It's a place not so responsive to our plans and purposes, but seems to actively work against them, captive as it is to sin and death. Now, anyone who's had their life disrupted by anything knows just how subject to chance and change it is. And so our security in this world, subject to chance and change, is the Lord who changes not and with whom nothing is left to chance. This world and the powers and principalities that dominated are set against us, but God is for us. And his purpose to give us a future and a hope changes not. 
And so the things that happen to us, the things that befall us in life, whether good or bad, are simply not indicators of God's disposition toward us. His disposition toward us, His attitude, how He feels about us, is not declared to us in the happenings of our lives. Things are going good, so God must be smiling on me. Things are going bad, so I must have done something wrong. God's attitude toward us is determined not in what happens in our lives, but in who He is. God's goodwill runs deeper and on a deeper level than the affairs and happenings of this world, like a subterranean river. There's a real sense in which attempting to read the tea leaves of our lives to discern hidden things through the events of our lives only brings about more confusion and anxiety. Because who can tell, apart from some sort of direct revelation? Who can understand what God is actually doing in our lives? what he's actually up to. Do not most of our answers originate in us rather than God. And so we don't look about this world which is going like this all the time. We don't look for confidence there in the things that happen to us or in that things go our way. But we look for our confidence in him who's promised that no matter what happens to us, no matter what your life looks like, great or terrible, blessing or tragedy, that he's for us. So beneath the violent upheavals of history and more acutely in our own lives, there is a divine substructure, an eternal consistency that undergirds everything that wills only our good, regardless of what happens in this world. God will not allow us to be consumed because he changes not. And so we can seek worldly security, one that finds comfort in having all the contingencies accounted for. If this happens, I have this in place. If the bottom falls out here, I've got help there, or whatever it might be. And I'm not saying that such backstops against chaos are wrong. No, because wisdom and prudence are Christian virtues. But what I am saying is that they can become substitutes for trusting in the one who does not change. He's the backstop. And so once again, God's consistency enables us to be consistent amid all the inconsistencies. Having it fixed in his heart in our hearts rather that God's goodness stands independent of the things that happen to us enables us to face them with a confidence otherwise impossible. Whatever happens, God's consistency is there. And that gives us a consistency, an anchor in the midst of all the turmoil. So rather than trying to you know, discern the purpose in the, will, in the whirlwind, searching for hints and speech in the smallest things, just plunge beneath the surface. Because there is the subterranean current of God's goodness that changes not. So to conclude now, we trust ourselves, ourselves inconsistent, the world inconsistent, to a self-consistent God who is eternally the same. And that self-consistency is proved upon the cross. 
As Jesus was on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, those who were persecuting him, those who had put him there, who were mocking him. Forgive them. And the Apostle Peter tells us in his first epistle that while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. You see what's going on there? There's no tit for tat. There's no like for like. He's being reviled. He's being mocked. He's being persecuted. And yet what's coming forth from him is the same love that was always there. He's not responding like for like. There's the manifestation of our self-consistent God. Here is a love that cannot be provoked to be anything than what it is, perfectly self-consistent. We condemn and mock and ultimately murder the one who brings us God's love, and that love continues to do exactly what it always did, to love and to give and to forgive and to restore. And so the cross, and now as we turn to the Lord's Supper, as we prepare our hearts, we remind ourselves, is the sign of God's love, of his transcendent freedom, gloriously free from contingency and dependency upon anything outside himself. And there's the good news. It's such great news. We are powerless to change God's mind. We're powerless to determine his actions toward us. Despite our sin and wretchedness, though our sins cry out against us, though they call for judgment, God's mind is focused upon us for life and peace. Not on account of who we are, but on account of who he is. And so, as we come to remember our Lord in communion, let's remember what these elements point to and bring near to us. A love that is not determined by us, but utterly free to restore and to make new. In the bread and the cup, we receive a love that simply is, a God who simply is love. So let's remember God's unbounded grace and his unconditioned mercy. Jesus Christ's broken body and poured out blood for sinners. Take time now to pray and thank the Lord, and I'll come in prayer in a minute.